Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. It's September 13th as I record this, but it will be much later by the time that I get this episode up and running. I should be, by the time you're hearing this, moved across country finally and still struggling with some of the details at home in Alaska. This week's episode is sponsored by Book Marketing on the Skinny. I shall be launching it in either late October or just after. Again, and I'm looking forward to this class so much because this time I'm building coaching into the price point. So once a week, we'll be meeting together. I've had some personal wins also in my own book marketing while doing it on the tiny little bits of time my life allows and with a very small budget. So recently, I had a New York Times mention and I've chatted with someone over at Women's World, and just in general, I'm very, very thankful to have found ways to market my book in ways that don't make me feel skeezy. So if you're interested, I'll put up a link to get on the wait list. You can always sign up for my email at lameredith.com. Thanks so much. Welcome, Persisters, to another episode of Persistence You with Lisbeth. This week, I'm Completely honored to have Nina Corcoran with us. Nina is the first, no, that's not true, one of the first female police officers I have interviewed on the podcast. She spent 10 years almost as a police officer, and she broke gender barriers by becoming a certified SWAT operator. She strives to be a positive role model for the younger females in the community. She's also a survivor of sexual assault. And that happened when she was in college. Then she had an emotionally abusive relationship that she's also a survivor of. Nina is still very young and a powerful force. And today, Nina helps other women, both young and older, who've been in her circumstances. She provides a lot of inspiration and she is a writer. So I'm really Thankful that Nina took the time to talk with us today. And Nina, welcome to Persistence You with Lisbeth. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess some of the things that led up to you first being a police officer, well, both a police officer and a survivor of the things you've gone through. Fascinated. Absolutely. Um, Well, thank you for that great introduction. It made me feel really important. (laughs) <laughs> you are. <laughs> um, well, I actually met the man that I would later marry and who would later become my abuser when we were just 11 years old. Oh, wow. um, we went to the same school. Our parents were friends. And so it was one of those things that we just we spent a lot of time together and our relationship developed over the years from friends into a romantic relationship and then eventually a marriage. And our relationship was actually always very toxic and had those emotional abuse um, red flags and, and indicators, but no one had ever taught me about 
toxic relationships or emotional abuse. So I had no idea that those were an issue. It kind of fell under that whole, like, you know, boys pick on you because they like you thing. And that just developed over the years. And so I just always assumed that that was a completely normal thing that everybody endured as part of their relationship. So as we morphed from friends to, to more and, and then eventually into a marriage, none of that seemed strange to me. And so we grew up in that relationship. He deployed after high school. He joined the military. He was stationed in Hawaii. He deployed to Iraq. So when when our romantic relationship really started, we had this long distance relationship. So we never really dated in the physical sense. It was always that kind of honeymoon stage of like, we'd only see each other for a few weeks. So everything would be perfect and wonderful and everyone was happy. And then he'd go away again and we'd have the long distance thing again. And then when he got out of the military, he came home and moved directly in with me and we got engaged and then shortly thereafter got married. So we really never had that like point of the relationship where I may have been able to notice the toxic parts of the relationship. We just dove right in. Sure. And by that point, while he was deployed, um, I followed my own dreams of becoming a police officer. And so by the time he moved in with me, I was already a police officer. I was already out on my own, like out of the academy and through all of my training. And I had kind of become a domestic violence expert because I was the only female in my department. So when those kind of calls came in, when there were victims who were women, I always ended up there because everybody kind of just assumed that victims would relate more to a female. And so there's only one. So here I am. (laughs) Right. (laughs) By default. Exactly. And so I would have absolutely, if if someone had asked me, I would have said, absolutely, I know everything there is to know. Like, I'm an expert. That could never happen to me. And it wasn't until three years into my career as a police officer and about a year into our marriage that I responded to a call. I was on scene talking to this other woman who was very clearly in a dangerous relationship and she just wasn't ready to see it. And I was getting so frustrated because I wanted to help her so bad. I could see it. I wanted her to see it, but you just, you can't force that on someone else. Correct. And it got to the point, there does come a point as a police officer where there's nothing else you can do. Your hands are tied. If the, if they don't want your help, you can't help them. Right. So it did come to the point where I had to leave and I left there feeling so defeated and so angry because I wanted to help her so badly and couldn't. And so I was sitting in my cruiser a little while later making my notes, which is pretty customary after a call. And I'm sitting there and I realized that everything I was writing could have had my own name in front of it and it would have been true. Oh, wow. And that's when I had the crushing realization that it did happen to me and it's currently happening to me. And That was a really hard thing to come to terms with because here I am thinking, you know, I'm invincible because I'm a police officer and I have this realization that not only am I not invincible, but I'm in danger. Right. And that was, that was the day that I, I realized that my entire 15 year relationship with this man, boy at the time, but man eventually, um, was toxic and dangerous and 
really not good for my mental or physical health. Oh my goodness. That what a way to find out right in the throes of a crisis at work. Mm-hmm. Oh goodness. And uh, what did you decide to do, Nina? Because that's a really big thing. Your parents are friends. You've been together a long time. You probably have a lot of empathy because he served overseas. And, you know, there you are. It was it was incredibly difficult for a lot of reasons because, yes, I, I was making excuses for him. I thought I could fix him. I thought I could change things. And I was always blaming his anger and his... Um, like sudden, sudden bursts of violence and things like that. I was always blaming that on his service. I was always thinking like, you know, he just needs some time away and he'll grow out of that, or I'll be able to change that about him or whatever it is, or it's just, it's because he was drunk, What whatever the excuses were, I made them. And so that I, I felt guilty about that. I felt guilty about the fact that I, I kind of felt like my parents approved of this relationship because it was one of those things, you know, everyone always said, oh, you guys are the perfect couple. You guys are going to end up together. Like you're the storybook fairy tale, you know, grow up and get married kind of thing. And so I felt like I was disappointing them. It was barely a year after our wedding that I had this, had this epiphany. So I felt like people were going to say I didn't try hard enough or that we failed or, or, you know, whatever, kind of stigma comes with divorce too. So I had that weighing on me. And then I had this incredible guilt and shame because I'm supposed to be able to take care of everybody else. I'm supposed to be able to fix everybody. I'm supposed to be this badass police officer. And (laughs) here I am in this situation. I was embarrassed to tell anyone. I didn't want anyone to know because surely they were going to assume that because I was in this situation that I was not capable of being a police officer. So I went home after having this epiphany and really tried to prove myself wrong. I looked for all of the reasons why I could maybe have been confused or, you know, maybe things aren't as bad as I think, or still trying to make those excuses. Sure. And I spent over a week trying to somehow make it so that this wasn't that bad. And ultimately what I ended up proving to myself was the opposite, that things were actually worse than I thought they were. And there were a lot of days where I wondered if I could just pretend until one of us died, if that, that was the only way I saw out of it, because the only other ways would either ruin my career, ruin my reputation. I'd have to admit that I was a victim. I'd have to, I'd have to become the problem in my mind. Right. Right. And so I really, I spent a, a couple days trying to figure out if I could just pretend for the rest of my life that this was okay. And ultimately, I realized very quickly that that was not going to work, that you know, that was not healthy. That was not safe. That was hypocritical for everything that I would say to somebody else in that situation. And I finally decided to basically break down and tell my best friend who was also a police officer. Um, I locked myself in my bathroom. I was sitting crying on the floor and I sent a text message that if you printed it out, it would probably be like three or four pages long (laughs) to my best friend. And 
I really expected the worst. I expected him to turn around and basically be like, I can't believe you got yourself in this situation. You should have known better. Like I was ready for the worst. And luckily he turned around and was, you know, picture perfect of what everyone deserves in that situation and said, you know, let's get you safe. Let's get, let's get you out of this situation. This is not your fault. Those kind of things. And he, wow ultimately really helped me make my safety plan and get out of that situation, at least for the time being. And then I had to, I had to work my way through the legal system because unfortunately we were legally married. So we had to unravel that. But um, ultimately those first couple days afterwards were a whirlwind of emotions because there was just so much going through my head. I couldn't see a, a way that this could end well. You know, even even if everything went perfectly as far as he was concerned, I could only see a way that it made me worse off in the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, and luckily, that's not true. You know, fantastic, because sometimes it is true. (laughs) So, you know, there are a lot of people who go through it and that actually is true. They lose so many things and the offender, the abuser does not. So good. Tell me about that. And, you know, I don't ultimately think that he lost very much. I would like to believe that, you know, even through the journey that I've come on where I've started to tell my story and expose what happened to me, I'd like to believe that there was some sort of justice, but I don't think there really was, which is kind of the case. We as a society really put the focus on the victim and the survivor rather than the abuser. It's like the abuser didn't even exist and nothing bad ever happens in that realm. Um, But I was very lucky in the sense that all of the things that I imagined happening, all of the, you know, friends I imagined I'd I'd lose, um, the family I thought, friends and family I thought I had already lost because I was so isolated from them. And I thought that they were already, you know, it was already too late for those relationships. It wasn't. I had, you know, some really great reunions with with my family and my friends when I was finally able to say like, you know, I didn't want to lose touch. This is just how this just happened. And I'm so glad that you're still there for me and, you know, really get welcomed back into the life that I didn't realize I was even missing. Oh, that's beautiful. And so I really did get lucky in that sense. And it was it was a very long um, process of untangling myself from him and then starting the healing process and getting to the point that I am today, you know, almost eight years later. But that process, although painful at the time, has brought me to this point where I can honestly tell you I've never been happier. So it's worth it. Right. But it is a long, it's a very long process. It takes a while, really, doesn't it, to autopsy the relationship and to say, how did I not see this? Which it's very easy to see how you didn't see it. You had a long distance relationship and one that was built from childhood. And so your norms were different, but it's so easy to write things off when somebody is serving their country. It's like, well, what kind of an animal would I be if I didn't just say, look, he's going through so much. And really that probably had nothing to do with the, with what was already baked in the recipe. So, you know, I can totally see how that happened, but it takes a while to 
look back, to get support, to talk about it, to unpack some of that, maybe go to therapy or abuse recovery or both. Um, Because a lot of people just say, well, that was awful. I'm going to find someone who's better. And that's the response. And that doesn't usually end well. So tell me about your recovery process and what what has really, really helped you. So one of the things that really helped me was therapy because I was totally against therapy. Um, The same best friend that helped me initially essentially dragged me to my first therapy session. You know, Um, it was so stigmatized in my mind based on um, probably my career where, you know, we're supposed to be able to just take care of ourselves and put it in a box in the back of your mind and not think about the bad things and all of these things. And, um, you know, therapy was for quote unquote broken people. And I didn't want to admit that I was broken. I was doing everything I could to put on that brave face of everything's fine. When in reality, everything was not fine. I had years and years. I had essentially my entire adult life of abuse where I didn't even know who I was without that. I mean, from 11 years old on, I never got a chance to become a person without his influence. Right. And and we're not just talking about a friend that I like casually spend time with. I mean, this was essentially my best friend, the person that I didn't go one day without talking to. He influenced every decision I ever made, including where I went to college. Wow. So, I mean, this is this is the entire development of who I became. And so I didn't know who I was without him and without that voice in my mind telling me what I should and shouldn't do. And on top of that, you just, there are so many things that you don't realize you do because you have adapted them to survive in your relationship. And not all of those things are healthy. And so, I spent a good portion of my mental thinking time always trying to be one step ahead of what could go wrong in any situation. And I would have told you that that was because I was a police officer. And so I was always, you know, worst case scenario, this is what I would do. But the reality was I was always trying to avoid a fight at home. I was always trying to think one step ahead of my ex-husband so that I never got to the point where things blew up. And of course, I was never successful. I was always somehow falling short in that category, which also made me feel like a failure and made me feel like I wasn't good enough at what I was trying to do. It made me doubt my abilities as a police officer, because if I can't think ahead of my ex-husband, how am I supposed to think ahead in, in a worst case scenario? And then there was just the the sheer fear that I was living with afterwards. I was afraid to go to go home after work because I was afraid he'd be there waiting for me. I was afraid that, you know, if I went to bed, he would burn the house down while I was in it. I was, you know, I had real fears for my life that sound irrational to pro- to someone who doesn't understand, but right. they were very real to me and they were very 
serious. And so therefore, I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't taking very good care of myself. So I mean, there were a lot of things playing on in the background that were really affecting me that I had no idea about until I sat down with that therapist who started to help me unpack those things and be like, this you know, this is why you're doing some of these things. And it has nothing to do with your job. It has nothing to do with, you know, whatever else you want to blame it on. And it has everything to do with how you think about yourself and how you think about this relationship. And so therapy was wow. hugely beneficial to being able to unpack those boxes and be able to start looking at things and realizing that there were certain things I was only doing because of I'd essentially been trained to do them by him. Right. And it's a long process to reverse those things because you're so used to doing them. And even to this day, eight years later, my current husband, who we're in a wonderful, healthy relationship and couldn't be, couldn't be happier, but I still find myself falling back on some of those things just because they're they're so ingrained in me. Like, you know, if our plans get ruined because the weather is bad, I will st- my instant reaction is I'm so sorry. Right. And because I had to apologize for everything to survive in my previous relationship and he'll look my current husband will look at me and say like it's not your fault it's raining. <laughs> you don't control that. And it's but it's and it's weird and it sounds so silly because of course I don't control that it's raining but in my previous relationship it didn't matter that I couldn't control that it was still somehow my fault and it still would become somehow my fault because I made the plans or I did something and whatever it was and so my first reaction in a lot of situations is to apologize and that's 8 years later that's still something that I am working on right. on trying to change and who knows when I'll actually be able to, you know, pull that completely out of my system. But it's those little things that you don't realize you're doing. Right. And they seem like, it. who cares if you apologize for things that aren't your fault, right? But deep down, I'm blaming myself when I shouldn't be blaming myself. And that's affecting my self-esteem, my self-worth, whatever. So it seems like a silly thing. It seems like a little thing. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still, it's very important. I think what you talked about also that's important is you wanted to stay ahead of that whole scenario and to feel like you had some control over it. When you're in an abusive relationship, you become your own weather girl. In a sense, we used to call them weather girls when I was young, meteorologist. You, you learn to take the temperature of the room. You learn to be very cautious and try to forecast what your life is going to be like based on what the person who has control is doing and how they're behaving and what their mood is like and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to unwind that and to dial that back. And it's very detrimental. It's not healthy. It's certainly not something that you want to role model for other people, but it's hard on you. It's just very, very taxing. Very, very hard on you. So I love that you said that. Yeah, it's emotionally exhausting. It's very draining. And it's, you don't have control over those situations, but you're trying to control them. And when you ultimately fail at doing so, because you can't control it, it's crushing because you've tried so hard to control it. Right, exactly right. So that leads me to, I mean, and I love that you left after a year because I think that takes confidence 
And I agree that, you know, you've spent money probably for the wedding. The invitations went out if you had a big wedding. All those people stood and watched you. They all had commented on how perfect, how perfect, how delightful, what a great couple. And yet you didn't let a decade more go by. You literally had to make a decision that would redefine your life. And I think that's so brave and so incredible. And it's very normal for us to take on that feeling of failure that it didn't work out. I, I knew within a, a, a day or two of my wedding that this was a catastrophic event and I stuck with it almost five years and every day in a marriage like that, in a relationship like that, those are dog years. Every day was a week and it was crushing. And you know what? Nothing got better. It only got worse over time. So I do commend you for having the confidence and, and the humility it takes a lot of humility to look at a relationship that you chose to be in. Let's be honest. That's what every, we're telling ourselves. And to say, oop, I need to reroute. This is not right. I need to reroute and make a different decision. So I really think that's fantastic. How did you get to work with other survivors and tell us about your writing. What, what evolved after all of this? You know, it took, like I said, it took a really long time to get to the point where I was comfortable even telling other people because I still carried. We lost you there for just a second. I think we're having a little bit of internet issues. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Am I back? There you are. I I think you're back. Yes. Go ahead. Um, you know, it took a really long time to get to the point where I could feel comfortable talking about this because I did carry a lot of shame and embarrassment that just went along with everything from from the divorce and all the way through. And eventually I got to this point where I realized that by by keeping that silence and and holding on to that secret, I was still letting him control that part of my life. And I was still giving him that win. And so I finally decided that I was going to speak out about this and I was going to share my story and I was going to not let him control that part of me anymore. And so I started with a blog and it was really easy to write anonymously online, right? It was really easy to tell my story without putting my face to it, without putting my name to it, to just kind of talk about it in the third person as if it was anyone else's life. And so I started there and really felt that that was very therapeutic as well to be able to do that. And ultimately I started putting my name to it and I started putting my face to it and I, you know, expanded onto Instagram and started posting pictures there, even going as far as posting pictures of me in uniform and telling my story and saying, yes, I'm a police officer. I'm a strong woman who still had this happen to me. And I have always had a love for writing. Both of my degrees are in writing. So I felt like, you know, this is where I have to go with this. And I really wanted to target younger adults. And so my first novel is a young adult novel. And I feel strongly about that because, like I said, I met this person when I was 11 years old. And granted, we weren't romantically involved until many years later, but no one ever told me what to watch out for. No one ever taught me how to look out for those signs. 
And so I don't want that to happen to other young girls and other other young people. I want them to learn early enough that they can see those things and get out well before they spend 15 years with somebody and have to put up with all of that abuse. So I wrote this story. I wrote the story. Um, you know, it's a fictional story, but all the emotions are very real and come from my experiences. And I geared it towards that age range where you're just starting to date and just starting to learn those things. And um, and I just hope that as other young women read it, they can start to pick up on those things that are toxic and dangerous and therefore apply them to their own lives and, and avoid getting into the situation that I got into. Oh, that is just terrific. I think that's fantastic. Would you mind elaborating on just a few of the signs that you would tell, let's say, and ele- without scaring them to death, but uh, <laughs> that you would tell someone 11 or above about some of the signs of a, a, an abusive relationship that are subtle. Absolutely. You know, an abusive relationship often feels a lot like being bullied, but it has that cycle where you're bullied and then you're made to feel good and then you're bullied and then to made to feel good. Whereas a healthy relationship, there's no bullying. It's supposed to be feel good all the time. You're supposed to feel better when you're with that person. So when you get into that that role of somebody that's constantly, you know, hu- trying to humiliate you, trying to to make you feel bad about something, always pointing out your flaws, you know, those really negative things, that's where that toxicity, you know, breeds and lives. And that can happen in a friendship. It can happen in all sorts of other relationships. It's not just a romantic relationship. And once you start to get into that habit of having that, you know, just not feeling good around somebody, those that's a really big red flag. If somebody makes you not feel good, but then is nice to you 15 minutes later, that's not normal. That's not how a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or anyone else should make you feel. So that pay attention to just that cycle of if you feel like you're ever being bullied by someone who's supposed to care for you that's a problem. Right. Absolutely. And I also like what you said about in, in your relationship, you get to the point where you were isolated. And sometimes that isolation can happen because if if the person that you've chosen to be with is insulting you in front of people or says they don't like that friend and they're a bad influence mm-hmm. or they are paying attention to your text, your phone, they're asking, who, what did that person say? Why are they talking to you? all of that, it's easy to let friendships slip and relationship, familial relationships slip. And then if the only person in your ear is telling you negative things about yourself, you're much more likely to believe them because there's no one else to counterbalance those messages. So exactly. great, great point. I love what you're doing with your experience and making it something that other people can benefit from. You know, it's no reason in the world for you to be ashamed. And you know that now, but you can certainly use that experience to help others avoid the experience. Where would you like for people to know more about your writing and to keep up with you? So you can find uh, my books, my blog, um, all these podcasts, interviews. I always link those too. Um, everything on my website, which is ninacorcoran.com. Uh, you just have to remember that I spell my name a little funny. So it's N-E-N-I-A-C-O-R-C-O-R-A-N. And that's .com. And all everything's on there. And I um, also have a contact page on there where if you need to reach out and, and ask questions, I'm always available to answer those too. I try to answer all the ones that I get. 
I love that. Thank you so much for being here today. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.